Welcome to the Tabletop Submarine, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. You're your host. Hey, Andrew. Knock, knock. Uh, who's there? Wah. Wah? Who? Wahoo! It's another episode of the Tabletop Submarine Podcast! <laughs> Here I was thinking, you can't knock on a submarine door and have it be anything other than sea life and a flood. So I was worried, really wasn't sure where that was going to go. Well, <laughs> wahoo is a type of fish. So it, it's, oh, that's true. it's a very delicious type of fish, actually. Um, really good fried and served with some hush puppies, but that's beside the points. We're not here to talk about delicious food, even though I'm not against delicious food. We're here to talk about board games. Listeners, welcome to another episode of the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. It is so good to have you here. As always, my name is Josh, and with me is my loyal co-host. And I'm Andrew. And today's guest is Asger Harding Granerud. Did I say the name right? That's uh, as good as it ever gets in English. <laughs> okay. Why don't you go ahead and say the names so that we can get it right properly. Um, and you are the game designer of the game Heat from Days of Wonder, plus several other games. This is your is this your second game from Days of Wonder? Correct. Yes, Deep Blue was the previous one they published just before uh, the pandemic. And uh, yes, my name is, uh, if I pronounce it in Danish without any accent, it would be Esker Harding Granerud. So so close enough, but uh, I'm I'm used to the English pronunciation by now. Yeah, uh, I'm a game designer. I have about 25 games uh, released, boxes out there over the last six, uh, seven years. And uh, of course, more to come uh, in, in the future. So what's the uh, Danish game design scene like? We hear a lot about like the German game design scene or even like the Netherlands. Uh, it's, it, it's exploding, I think. Uh, six or seven years ago, some of the like a role playing convention started doing a a game design contest, like a small thing, which meant that a lot of game designers started meeting up and organizing. And since then, it's been moving really, really fast. So it's not just me, and of course uh, in Copenhagen here, we also have the Champions of Midgard designers. We have the Fog of Love designer. We have the Living Forest designer to just won the Spiel the Jahr. We have the uh, Shake That City, the next game from um, from uh, AEG coming soon. Yeah, uh, that's not from this city, but Copenhagen is uh, sorry. Denmark is a small place, so uh, it's not too far from here. Anyway, they're from Aarhus and around. So um, nice. there's so many designers just uh, getting published over the last three, four, five years. Well, why, why do you think that is? Well, what makes the what makes the Danish? What do they put in the water there? <laughs> <laughs> I I just think we. It's a, it's a, an advantage to have a small enough country that it's easy enough to... Basically, I, I almost know any and all game designers in the entire country, and I've probably met them as well. And we have... Once we started this, uh, this convention, started um, running the tournaments, we also started organizing into regular playtest groups around the country for this event. And... Some of these playtest groups also had a, had a very strict focus on getting published. So the playtesting was not as much to sit down for three hours and, and, and play your game and find out the details of the balancing at the nth degree. It was more like you have ha half an hour, try to find out what you need to know, then go home and play it some more. But the feedback will be solely focused on trying to get it published, like a commercial kind of focus. It doesn't mean that it has to be 
the most mainstream kind of game. That's not necessarily what commercial means to us. But I think that focus helped us get to the explosiveness of the scene now where really many people are getting published over the last few years. That's great. That's really interesting. I like that you're focusing specifically on getting published, not necessarily because it makes it the best possible game, but it makes it a more viable product, which then will lead to probably a better game, which I think is very interesting. It's a it's a interesting question, and uh, and, and and it taps into the discussion on whether or not it's an art or a craft, and mm -hmm. and uh, what is the better product? Is the better product the one that gets played by hundreds of thousands of people that love it, or is it an even better product if it gets played by tens of thousands of people that absolutely adore it as the best thing ever. I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer, but obviously from an income perspective, uh, from the pure commercialization aspect of it, you, you would prefer the hundreds of thousands and the millions of users. So here's a question concerning Danish gaming culture. What is the most popular game in Denmark? Like, you know, like in Canada, they have like Crokinole is kind of like their, their whole yeah. thing. Uh, you could argue that America is like all about chess or like those classic uh, type of games. What's it in Denmark? I think probably up there would be like real classics as chess and backgammon if you dive into it. But I think prob maybe the one that gets played the most is Liar's Dice, mm. um, <laughs> which is uh, which is really a, a pub game everywhere you go in Denmark. There's not a pub you can go into in Denmark where you can't ask them for a few dice cups and, and uh, sets of dice and you can sit around and play Liar's Dice for, for who pays the next round. I like uh, it. That's and it's a fantastic game, if you ask me. Lies, dice, absolutely amazing. What do you like about it so much? I just think it, it has the, the bluffing element. It has the casual progression that it gets tougher who, for whoever is winning. I don't know if there are variants out there, so maybe this is just the version we're playing here in Denmark. Um, but, but typically, once you win a round, you get rid of a, a die, and the goal is to get rid of all your dice, um, which means that for the next round, if you won the first round, you have less information because you have less dice to to bluff with, and whoever lost would still have the full complement of of, uh, of dice. So I just think there's lots of those small elements, uh, an easy way to to bluff and lie, and yeah, it does it in a nice way. In the way we play it here, it also means that whoever it's actually not a winner of a round. There's one loser, which also means that everyone has a joy every single round uh, because, well, everyone except one because they didn't <laughs> lose, right? It scales perfectly. It doesn't matter if you're two players or if you're seven players, you can still play it and it can still be fun. So like, what aspects of like that culture, maybe behind Liar's Dice or like Denmark gaming culture, do you take with you when you design your games? I don't think I take anything specifically from from that i think probably my the way i design games is formed by a very long relationship with my co-designer where we've been designing games together for for almost a decade uh, wow. nine years now um, and then i think it comes from making house rules and tournament systems and composition systems for for warhammer fantasy battle where this the games games workshop hobby was a big part of my 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 hobby life for uh, also 10 15 years um, and I was deeply into it and committed to it. And I think I've just played around with so many things in there. And and uh, some design philosophy has, not from the hyper-complex versions of it, but from how to make easily understandable 
adaptive rule sets to put on top of it, like the house ruling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really enjoy making house rules, um, uh, and I think it's a great way to to train your design uh, muscle is to just play around with existing games and systems and find ways to make them better fit your tastes. I completely agree in all different ways. Hey, Josh, do you have any house rules on games? Oh, man, my, my entire Dungeons and Dragons experience is one big house rule. Let's, let's be real. I, I, okay. I mean, like, so, I mean, I totally agree. House ruling is a great way to get your design brain started. That's how it started with me because, you know, 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons is great for a lot of reasons, but there's also so many things wrong with it um, in lots of ways. It's still fun. It's no knock on it. RPG is really hard to design. Like the combat in D and D fifth edition is, in my opinion, absolutely dreadful. It's so long. Like if you're spending four hours in a combat in D and D that you didn't intend to happen, it's oh, it's oh. I mean, I've had I've had experiences where a small little scuffle turned into a three hour combat scenario, and I had hmm. it was it, it's part it was part of young being a young DM. But like, there's tons of house rules I do for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um, if I get a rule book. Like there's one game I recently played called Veggies. That's really fun, but the scoring is absolutely ludicrous. Like it's like an 18 card game. It's like only 50. It's not even that. It's super small cards, but the scoring is absolutely convoluted. That I just made something up to make it super easy. But yeah, I I agree that you know house rules is a great way to get started and to make gaming more fun. Uh, Andrew, return the question to you. So. I do some house rules, but I try not to until I've played the game a number of times. But one of my happiest uh, adjustments is with Wingspan. We play with all the expansions, but we play with two rows of birds instead of one. So you get to see six birds instead of three. And I think it makes the game so much better because it allows for players to actually find combinations that work. And on top of that, you just see more birds, which is part of the fun of the game anyway. I really like that house rule. I'll have to try that sometime. Well... I heard you talking about Warhammer, Asker, and we're going to get into that when we talk about your dive because you have a great story to share about that. But before we do, we got to check our instruments and see what's in our pre-launch. The pre-launch. Get to know us and our guests. Okay. Well, actually, I'm going to start with Andrew, if that's okay, Asker. I'm going to see what he's been playing lately, and then we'll jump straight to you because you have a game that's... I'm really looking forward to hearing about, but Andrew, could you take it away first? Yeah, so I've been playing a game called Hatchet Train. Uh, it was presented to me by a friend of mine who's a trick-taking specialist, Stephen Ungaro, here in Chicago. He's one of those guys that collects all these little Japanese and hard-to-find Korean card games, and like he has a vast knowledge. And so when I when I have questions about trick-taking or climbing games, I kind of go to him to find out what the new hotness is, what's going on. Last time I was hanging out with Steven at Gateway to the West, we ended up playing for about six hours, 10 different little games. I learned a ton about different stuff going on with that. That's great. So he recently reached out to me and we played Hachi Train. It's a climbing card game of the simplest level. For those who've never played, climbing card games are about players playing one card or two cards down, and then the next player has to play something that beats it. Usually it's in a better run or in more of the same kind. So if I play a one, Josh could play a two, Asger could play a five, I could play an eight, and then it comes back around to Josh, and Josh can play two ones, right? And Asger could play three ones or something like that, and just kind of improving on it until nobody can improve upon that. 
Then they clear the cards, and we start over from scratch again. That's the simplest version. Now, this climbing game doesn't do runs. It's only in pairs. But what's really interesting about this one is that as you play a card down to beat the card that was played before you, you have to pick up the previous card and put it into your hand. So you're collecting the thing that you're beating, which I think is very, very interesting. Also, you're not allowed to move or reshuffle the cards in your hand. But when you pick up a card, you can put it anywhere in the hand you want to, but you have to place things that are next to each other. So sometimes you'll play something that's not optimal to clear a space between things you want to connect, which I think is also very interesting. So Hachi Train is a cool little game. It's only a one on BGG is waitlist, so I think it can be played by just about everybody. And I'm looking forward to trying this with more people. I thought you were about to say it's a one rating. I'm like, geez, that's something I've never seen before. <laughs> oh, man. Cool. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Asker, let's hear about your game. What's on, what's been, what's on your pre-launch? On my pre-launch, um, I have uh, the game Scouts. And uh, actually, it sounds as if it's the exact same game that Andrew just uh, introduced. It's, oh. uh, it's an oink game, which is a re-implementation of an existing game. And of course, it's also a Japanese game. So um, maybe we're talking about the exact same game. Scout was nominated <laughs> to the Spiel DR. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you, it's a climbing game, but you do both runs and uh, pairs. Um, and you cannot move the cards around in your hand. And when you, uh, when, you, um, it, it, when you take, you can either scout or you can show. So you can either take a card or you can play a better card. But if you beat it, it also becomes a trick-taking game where the, the, the hand you beat becomes the points you, you get. Mm. Um, it's, it's an absolutely amazing small game. I'm a, I'm a sucker uh, for, for these small games with relatively simple rules where there's tons of dilemmas. And because you can't move the cards around in your hand, whichever way you end up playing a, a set of cards or cards from it creates new um, connections inside your hand. If I take these two cards from the middle, suddenly these cards are now next to each other and I can start to make a plan for what happens like three or mm -hmm. four times down the road to make an even stronger hand of cards that were originally not great um, because uh, they they weren't in a in a in a run or in a in a set. So this this just poses interesting dilemmas for me, and I'm, I absolutely love it. Hearing this, in, uh, the the explanation you um, you just gave to me, I think your game is probably what inspired or became Scout eventually. It might be the case. I have not looked to see when it was launched, so. Uh, but I have played Scout, and I really enjoy that game, too. I like the duality of the cards in that one, uh, okay. but that is a very cool game as well. I like that one. So they're not the same. You know it. I do know it. They're not quite the same, but they come from the same tree. So okay. I would not be surprised if they inspired each other on different levels. Yes, played it a lot, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. It's it's uh, my, my favorite game from 2022 for me. I don't know when it's launched. I don't care, but for me, it's introduced <laughs> this year, and I love it. That's great. Uh, Josh, what have you been playing? So I got my hands on Calico, uh, which is a game from AEG. This is a big home run for me as far as gaming goes. In Calico, really? you are making quilts to uh, try to attract kittens to come and snuggle the quilt. And that is the most adorable thing on the most stressful game I have played in a long time. <laughs> Anyone who's played games or listens to lots of podcasts knows that Calico has been often taught as a super stressful game. And it is. It's extremely stressful, but in, in all the right ways. Basically, you're getting these hexagons. And you're trying to um, enclose different 
areas of this quilt with certain patterns, whether it be color or actual like shape pattern or like I guess a sequence would be the proper word. And based on how you surround them, you're going to get certain points. Um, if you don't completely surround your quilt spaces with the proper sequence or, or color, you're going to not get any points. The problem is that when you're drafting these little quilt hexagons is that there's only three out of the table at a time. So there's a huge amount of scarcity as things come out. And so on your turn, you're placing one tile and then you're taking one tile. You are just praying the whole flipping time that your <laughs> tile comes out. More than I played a four-player game to start out. More than once, there was times when I needed that one tile and it was the turn right before me and they take it. They take the tile that I need, and the next tile that comes out is absolute horse manure that I don't need whatsoever, but I still have to take a tile. And so it becomes a game of trying to figure out how long can I hold out until the, the right tile comes along, or do I cut my losses and just take the lesser points and try to build something new? It's so simple. It is so well designed. Calico is... It's... it's I mean, I don't know, like... I played Cascadia and Calico, and there's similarities between the two. Mm -hmm. And I wish Calico got just as much praise and love as Cascadia did in lots of ways. Because Calico just provides so much meat and juice in its gameplay that I don't see myself getting tired of it like I did with Cascadia so quickly. But uh, that was Calico from AEG Games. Instruments are ready. I see a clear path down to the ocean bottom. Let's go ahead and go into our dive and hear Asger's story. Asger, regale us with tales of yore. Tell us about your story that you've come to share with us today. It's it's probably one of my most memorable gaming experiences, and I think part of it is that it's a team-based experience, right? It, it, just as I can remember some Captain Sonar games where you sit and you have really tight team experience and you achieve something together, but also in a competitive setting. I, I played competitive Warhammer Fantasy for uh, for a decade or so, it was my my main gaming hobby, or almost my only gaming hobby at the time. Part of organizing the big European team championship, which is still called today, even though the US and Australia attends, etc. So it's it's countries from all over the world. So it's basically the world championship. About ten years ago, uh, we we managed to win it as a as a national team. That's Eight people playing eight different armies, uh, playing against eight other from another national team, typically with a coach around as well. And yeah, preparing for months in advance, training and everything. Yeah, loved it. Amazing. So when you're setting this up, you're playing eight different factions or eight factions within the same faction? No. So it the, the team, the national team... Actually, I'm not sure how they have the, the tournament set up today because I'm not active anymore. I haven't been for years. But back then, the Danish national team or any of the national teams would have eight players. So uh, just as a, a, as a soccer team would have a, a goalkeeper and a striker and, and midfielders, right. etc. You would try to design these different roles into it and you would have different counters to the opposing uh, national teams and then you would have a pairing system to try to get the correct pairing so you would get 
the player that you want against it. Then you would resolve those eight games and uh, you would tally up the score and you would see uh, which which team won. Kind of uh, when you have um, the first board in a chess match and the second board and the third board, like in the Olympics or in other national uh, tournaments of the sort. But it would be eight different factions on a national team. You could not turn up as the Danish national team and only playing eight identical armies or even eight identical fashion factions. But it's still a head-to-head matchup framework. Absolutely, it would be. You, okay. you then get paired into a to a head-to-head uh, uh, faction. But the whole the whole pairing system becomes that if you have a counter to something. If you have a rock to a paper and, and to a scissor, then you want to avoid these things, and and that's where the analogy of the the goalkeeper and the striker, etc., probably makes right. makes some kind of sense to understanding the different roles. But this whole process, it's a big, intricate, complicated system, and then actually succeeding. We've been close for years, um, uh, but actually succeeding. And and winning winning as a team was uh, was an amazing feeling. Lots of champagne was was had that evening. Love it. So, like you said, you were training for this moment. So, like, give me give me like a, a montage spiel. Like, if you're doing like the whole Rocky or Karate Kid, whatever you want to do, montage. What does one do to prepare for this kind of level of Warhammer? So uh, I, I I'm not sure how to explain it. Of course, there's not the big Rocky moment of. Of running around it's more like playing lots of games talking a lot in the team and in the community about potential weaknesses teasing them out preparing the the pairing uh, system and and seeing if you can handle whatever gets thrown at you so um so it's just a lot of meeting up with with the uh, of course, also friends because it's not a huge community, which was a big part of what kept me in the in in that hobby for so many years. Was that it was a tight knit group of friends that knew each other and then met up for weekends or, or um, to to train and of course also attended tournaments to to hone your skills against others um, during it. So it's just a lot of playing Warhammer, a lot of preparing by doing and practicing. Well, sure, obviously, and obviously the camaraderie brings you back over and over again. But in this tournament, can you take us into the final game? Like, what unfolded? What happened? Were there people standing around the table? Was it, you know, 10 people around the table? Was it 200 people around the table? Yeah, okay, yeah. So so the the, the ETC at the time was a, a, about 30 national teams, uh, each with eight eight players and typically also a coach and sometimes there were, were additional hangarounds so imagine a, a big sports hall with with uh, 100 tables uh, huge warmer tables set up and uh, and 200 to 300 people when you include organizers etc uh, for for two full days of playing and then uh, you would have six games each person would have six games, but of course it would be forthrunning matchups against uh, different national teams. And if you ended up really beating everyone in the first uh, round, really smashing the opponent you were playing against, you get paired against someone else who also won more or less as big as you were. So whoever is at the top always gets paired up against uh, equally um, skilled or lucky or whatever you want to call it sure. um, uh, opponents. Um, so, so at the end of the six rounds, you, the the players at the far ahead of it uh, would would typically meet. I think the year we won, at that point we were in top three. We have played against the ones that were currently number one and two. We ended up beating 
at the time number four in our, in our round, and number one and two played close enough to to a draw that we then overtook uh, overtook them. Um, I I remember a, uh, a a shout across the hall when the Polish captain killed the Italian captain's vampire lord, uh, which uh, then sent uh, right meant that we were then back in the running for uh, for overtaking it, or it was the other way around. I can't remember. Uh, um, <laughs> I think it was the Polish captain. Yes, that killed the Italians. Yes, yeah. Um, so uh, so it's. Uh, and 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 at the end, depending on how uh, how 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 fast your game takes, if you are the first to finish, then people will start standing standing around. More spectators from all the other tables have finished, and will will start gathering. So it it's uh, yeah. Sounds like a really high energy event. Uh, what is the what's the what's the energy like though? Like in the entire. Yeah, you you get players who are willing to travel to other countries to push around tiny uh, <laughs> miniatures made of lead so and and equally have prepared and uh, for for months and some of them come from the other side of the world from from australia right so right. of course uh, there's a it is a high energy event and there is nothing to win as such besides the prestige of winning but with so many people who have prepared for such a long time and and of course it, it means something and uh, so so it is certainly a, a high energy event there are even even though it shouldn't happen but this happens in any kind of competitive event there are even tales of people who have cheated etc etc so these things are also part of what happens when you uh, dive into the competitive side of i think anything yeah it's the unfortunate part of that but yes at the same time it does make the stakes higher and it makes the intrigue amongst the players a little stronger now, you haven't mentioned what faction you were playing. Were you playing Space Marines? Were you playing Tyranids? What were you playing? So, as I deliberately said, I said Warhammer Fantasy. So, absolutely, I was not playing Space Marines or, or Tyranids. <laughs> uh, the, the, the year I won, it was the last year of 7th edition. So, um, then it changed to the 8th edition. Warhammer goes through lots of editions. That year, I played uh, Dark Elves. But I've played... Vampire Counts and Bretonians and Tomb Kings and uh, lots of other things at these events, which I attended for almost a decade. Um, uh, I've also organized the tournaments back here in Denmark and in Copenhagen, etc., which is where I think I got my, my main game design pedigree playing around with house rules for these kind of uh, events. So it's been a big part of my life for, for a long time. When I did end up ditching it, it was actually because I couldn't, I, there's a limit to how many hobbies you can do and take seriously, and as you can hear, uh, as you can tell, this this took a lot of my time and a lot of my focus. Yep. When I did ditch it, it was to try to start designing games. So it was actually ah. that transition that happened there. I figured that instead of trying to keep designing these uh, these uh, house rules for other games and competition rules and tournament rules. Why not try to build something from the bottom up uh, myself, and and that then ended up taking up all my my so to say hobby time until it's of course now long no longer a hobby anymore. That's one of the hardest things about this hobby that you can't you you can get pulled in so many different directions. It's almost exhausting. Like I I started off just a little RPG guy who loved Dungeons and Dragons, and now I do a whole bunch of RPGs. Still, I do board games. And I just recently got into the trading card scene with Flesh and Blood. And 
the ever so sweet siren song of board games just often whispers <laughs> against my ear as I'm sitting at the front counter of my work or the game store where I work at. And it's and I have friends there who just keep trying to convince me to hop into it, but like I need to do game design. But it looks really fun. Like I, I gave in, I have a copy of Marvel Crisis Protocol. It's the store's copy. I didn't buy it yet on my shelf that I'm trying to understand and get into. But it really is one of the hardest things about this hobby is that there's so many fun things that can just stretch you to where you, you know, can either get physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, or just financially, you know, depleted. It's it's a wonderful thing, but also it's one it's 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 not fair. I want all the games and I want them <laughs> I want them now, but that's just me being a brat, I think. <laughs> well, I think one of the things I like the most about the hobby is how wide and deep it goes, right? You can pick your pool and you can dive within that pool. And I would say that um, Warhammer's loss of Asgard is the world's gain of Asgard's games. So I appreciate that you have moved to game design and sharing now that with the world is a little less selfish, I think. That's <laughs> Thank <nice>. you. <laughs> yeah, and with that, we're gonna. I think we're going to go see what's on our radar because one of the games that's on our radar is going to be your game, Asker, which is Heat. So let's go ahead and see what's on our radar, talk about a couple games, then we'll do a little bit of a deep dive into what um, Heat is. Okay, folks, the radar's on. Let's go ahead and see what's in our future. Let's talk about uh, New York Zoo with Andrew. Yeah, so I'm. my father has this game, and he's been showing it to me, and I haven't had a chance to play it fully yet, but I really appreciate what this is trying to do. It's basically a polyomino placing game, but it's also a animal management game because you have to place the animals in the cages and then make sure that they're in there in time to do the breeding and you need to have two of them and then they replicate, but then they fill up the area and then you take them out and then you put new ones in and then there's some interesting stuff that goes on there. But what really seems to be interesting about this one is the push and pull of the decision-making process on your turn. Kind of like Ticket to Ride, you do one thing or another. In this one, it seems like you either collect a polyomino or you collect an animal. And I'm curious to see how this whole thing's going to work. So I'm looking forward to checking that one out. Asgar, what are you looking forward to checking out? I'm a dissolution gamer, so it's hard to me to find anything new that I'm really, really, really looking forward to. I, I still play, <laughs> play chess when I get a chance every day. I... I am actually really looking forward to Shake That City, which is uh, coming on, on Kickstarter, I think from AEG uh, this month sometime. However, I've had a chance to play it because it is from uh, from uh, one of the Danish designers. I just really yeah. enjoy games where it's not so much about planning ahead to the 10th turn. I've had, had these competitive experiences where I really dive deep into it and I make this strategic overview my, my entire life and trying to really understand and grasp it. Nowadays, I really enjoy getting some random input and having to do the best with it uh, in that situation. Of course, yes. I can make some plans for the future. I can, I can try to take uh, in, uh, certain odds into consideration. And uh, Shake That City has this shaker of, of you could almost say it, it's a, as you mentioned, a polyomino, but this is like a weirdly uh, kind of polyomino placement thing or just a pattern placement thing that gets, well, shaken up every round. Um, and yeah, I, I, I enjoy that challenge. 
That game is also on my radar as I've seen pictures of it, but I have not had a chance to learn anything about it. But it's definitely on my radar. Josh, your radar is a little on the obvious side, but go ahead and tell us anyway. Yeah, well, on my radar is Asger's game, Heat, Pedal to the Metal. Asger, we want to talk to you about this game. We want to make sure that people play your game design and your designs because, you know, for one thing, this is a, a Days of Wonder game, which is huge. I mean, you said you had one previously, but for me, Days of Wonder is like a publisher that I put on a huge pedestal for many reasons. <laughs> one, because, yeah. you know, it's Ticket to Ride. They had Ticket to Ride. I don't know they have a bunch of other games, but like Ticket to Ride is one of my favorites. And now you have two games with them. And Heat has been highly anticipated. I, I looked at the some of the images on Board Game Geek for it. It looks fantastic. And for whatever reason I said, I adore racing games. They are so fun. There's not enough of them. So I really want to hear about Heat. So the first question I have for you is, uh, you know, when designing this game, what were you trying to accomplish? What were you trying to achieve with this design? Oh, so many things at once. So first and foremost, we wanted an, an interesting racing game that could be played by not not families down to a young age with kids, but even with players who aren't necessarily gamers, if they get through a full lap, if they get help through that, we wanted to make sure that the core system is so relatively intuitive that anyone who is committed to learning it can learn it, right? Okay. We also wanted its dust to fit into a gaming experience that, that lasts within the hour because uh, there's, there's some problem if you extend into a three-hour game, then that in itself will will kill off a lot of potential uh, uh, players. Um, yeah. And then uh, we knew we wanted to play around with a card system uh, as the, I don't want to call it the engine, uh, well, the mechanical engine, but the, a, a card system for how you would drive your car around it, which means that you are having a hand of cards, you're discarding some of them and, and controlling this flow through your through your deck, not building, but deck management and hand management is, is always something that if you find the right balance, we know that it can lead to interesting dilemmas. And this small thing is, do you want to discard this card? You don't know what you draw. Maybe you will need it in a turn or two, but do you want to hold it back? Mm -hmm. If you hold it back, then it, it's a dead card in your hand for the next turn. If if you draw right. another one of the same card, then it could basically be effectively a dead card for two turns, etc. So all of these small dilemmas is uh, is what we wanted to, um, to, to, to get into the game. Excellent. And you also added a push-your-luck element with this whole heat thing, right? Sure. Um, so so the core system of, of having cards that cycle through, which, which can then relate to your speed, means you have a core system, and then we wanted to have ways of breaking the core system. Um, and, and in heat, the way you break it is basically if you do something you're not normally supposed to do or allowed to do, then you spend heat and you have a certain amount available at the start of the race. And you can consider it, kind of think of it as the, the pressure valve of, of, the, of the car. And, and the closer you get to using all of it, the closer you will get to spinning out and effectively losing a turn. More or less, it doesn't put you entirely out of the game, depending on the circumstances and on, on how good you are on, 
on using the catch-up mechanisms that are built into it, but it will be a, a quite quite a hindrance. And what heat does is it goes into your discard pile, and eventually your discard pile becomes your your draw deck, and eventually stuff from your draw deck ends up in your hand, um, and then only then it will start posing uh, trouble for you uh, when these heat cards uh, end up in your hand. So it's something you can use to break the rules that through this deck mechanism, which is what we wanted to be the, the, the big part of the game, um, eventually they will end up becoming a problem and then you have to handle it. And then if you can time it uh, for when you're ready to handle it, then it won't be as big a problem as if someone who hasn't timed it, etc. And it all feeds back to this timing of how you handle the deck so uh, if i open my box of heat and i put it on my table and you're looking at it with me asger what is the thing that you are most proud of with this game it's a good question um i'm so proud of what the final product is and looks like i i love the yeah. artwork from Vincent Dutre, and of course one thing that days of wonder still today if you're not talking comparing to huge kickstarters does better than almost anyone else is making an outstanding production. They did the same with Deep yeah. Blue. Um, it, and and that just makes me very happy. Apart from that, I think what I like is that the, I think we succeeded in the core system of the game. Change your gears. The gear equals the number of cards you play. The cards you play equals the, sp the sum of the cards you play equals the speed. And that you want high speed because it's a racing game, but the corners means you want low speeds, uh, and then mm -hmm. there are ways of breaking it. That's that's basically the rules of the game. I almost told you uh, in that sentence. So if you can get it to grok at that very basic level, anyone can understand it, and I think that's what I'm most proud of. There are some procedural elements of the turns and of the catch-up mechanisms, etc., that I think uh, maybe end up seeming more complicated than they actually are. But I think that actual ease of play, maybe after a lap is the realistic uh, way of explaining them, but the ease of play is what I'm most proud of. I've heard from several people that this game is hard to understand in the first couple turns and then just gets intuitive directly after that. So I think it sounds like you've hit exactly what you're trying to do. Also, I'm curious, from a tournament manager perspective, is this the kind of game you see being a tournament-level game going forward? I don't know. I, I, I don't know how many tournaments are actually being played in the, board, in the, in the hobby board gaming world. It's not something I've, I'm, I'm tuned into. Uh, I, of course, you can play it as a tournament, and uh, uh, if, you, uh, if you draft the upgrades... Um, the the garage module. So so the the base mm -hmm. game has four different modules that comes with it. And if you draft that, which I guess you would do if you played it as a tournament, I think it could could really shine. There's built into the very core game. Uh, there are some stress cards, which is basically a card that you have to play and then becomes a random value uh, within the normal range of values of cards you have. But it, that adds some uncertainty to, to it. But it's, again, my kind of jam where finding out the right time or even trying to calculate the odds or even calculate the exact cards in your, in your discard, even though you're not, uh, sorry, in your draw deck, means you can find the moment where you should play it. There will be lots of times where 
a, a less experienced player beats a more experienced player. If the experience gap is big, that's unlikely to happen. But again, I also think that's important for me when I play games and also for the games that I designed, that that's actually uh, not, that's a feature. It's not a bug. Uh, it makes it more interesting uh, and more uh, engaging instead of possibly if you know someone, this, this person has played it a thousand times more, this person will win. Why are we even playing? Like if you play chess at all, you know if the ELO rating gap is too large, then it doesn't become an exciting experience for anyone involved. All right, that pretty much settles that. I just figure with the World Series of board games coming up and playing the second year, I'm wondering how long until Heat gets added to that list. But it sounds like it's not quite ready for that yet. That's fair. But I have heard a lot of people comparing this very favorably to other racing games like Formula D and stuff like that. What did you do to try to separate from those and make it your own game? So even when I first designed Flamme Rouge, um, one of the things I hate is a big word I don't, don't, don't really use, and I don't know what word to use instead, but one of the things I actually hated about Formula D was the counting. I felt I was sitting and I was spending my time, instead of racing, counting 10, 20 spaces ahead and what if I did a little bit like this or a little bit like that and that could, could impact it. Um, so I, I think that's part of what separates it. It has a relatively fast pace, which some of these other racing games also has, but without the lots and lots of counting being done. I, I can play the game, just look at the board and almost never really have to count. Of course, it happens once in a while. But again, everyone is taking turns at the same time, which is what keeps the, the pace up. Um, you're you're playing in an hour and you're playing between 15 and 18 turns, I think, depending on the tracks. Sometimes it can be 20 turns and you're still playing within an hour. And that's even if you're six or which we've tested with eight players, it doesn't really impact it. Um, so I think just just those elements really, uh, really push it. Ha after having seen the release into the public and I've already gotten the, the, the feedback we have, I think a really, really big part of the future success of the game is also simply the solo variant rules or the self-driving bots. Uh, they don't have to be yes. used at solo, which means that the game is something you can consider playing if you're two players, if you're one player, if you're three players, because mm -hmm. the bots, no matter how many of them you add to the, to the racetrack, uh, it will still take you less than a minute to handle the the movement of all of them as soon as you've, again, learned that system, which will maybe take you a lap or so to really have it intuitively understood. But I think that's part of what will keep it above the some of the, if it stays above at all. But, but if it does so, I think that's part of it. It means you can play it at any player counts and still have a good experience. I think that's a very important thing to the success of any kind of game because it means there are so many more opportunities to get it to the table. I think that's one of the choke points for a lot of games is whether you can play it at different player counts. And I know that obviously during the pandemic, a lot of us played a lot of two-player games only. Yes. So the fact that you can play this game that way, I think is a huge bonus. You also have a little bit of a legacy aspect to it with the multiple race format and stuff like that, which I think is also very interesting to play into. I don't think I would ever call it legacy myself. I would call it a like more like a campaign module. But yes, there's okay. um, 
You can play the 1961, 1962, and 1963 seasons. Um, these are, are the only language-dependent uh, elements of the game where uh, each of these seasons would have three or four races, and then you add up, the, you build your car. As, as you go, it gets gradually better. There are some like more storytelling and sponsorship elements that puts extra emphasis on the individual, on the individual race just has some extra flavor for an extra rules for how you you go about it and then you simply add up points over the races and you can find a winner after the 61 and you could have a different winner after the 62 season and then of course you could end up playing for the for the goats the greatest of all time and see who who's actually the best across the entire seasons we hope to make a 64 season and a 65 season if it becomes a big enough hit here over the Christmas season, then we know they will ask for expansions. The, the talk is already there, but nothing has been settled. Of course, you, we need to see these um, these first sales for the first few months. Well, I'm excited to pick it up because if it's good two-player, that's my jam. Because That's usually what I play with. Let's go ahead and get to the surface. I think we've kept Asgore on this voyage for long enough. Let's let him go and just wrap this whole thing. Well, Asger, thank you so much for coming on the submarine today. Heat sounds amazing. I love hearing people talk about their Warhammer stories. You know, it's really just has been a pleasure listening to you, you know, and talking with you and getting your experiences out into the world. So thank you so much for coming on the submarine today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here and uh, I enjoy talking about games. So, it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If so if people want more Asker, if they want to have you know more of you in their life, whether it be on socials or just in, in like their good game designs, what can they do? Where can they find you? I think they need to go buy my games if they want more of me in their lives. To be honest, <laughs> I, I'm not. Uh, I I I do. I am on social media, but it's not something I use actively in my in any game design context or any gaming publishing things. Um, I I don't even go out and hunt to come on on podcast i i do say often say yes when people ask but it's not something i actively seek to do so um I, even though i enjoy it it's not it's not part of where you will find me you you can find me on i, I do think i have an open facebook profile but probably i'll be writing about left-wing politics in denmark so it might not be super in, in danish so it might not be super interesting for for the uh for the um listeners to follow <laughs> well for the listeners reference i will now list off very quickly some games that are by asker starting with copenhagen heat flam rouge deep blue looks like frog riders goodnight bunnies helsinki inner compass iron curtain uh, anything else i'm missing i'm just going down your uh, 13, page right now. 13 days um panic mansion or i think it's called shaky manor in the u.s which had a kinderspiel nomination um, and now you will embarrass me because now uh, whatever I forget will be, well, embarrassing. Rally trucks from Haba, <laughs> uh, Monster Soup, new from Metsako, uh, A Tale of Pirates from Cranio Creations, uh, and it will get even more embarrassing. Fringers, which was the ridiculously timed 10-player uh, party game where you have to touch each other's hands, and then it was released, arrived in stores in April 2020. Um, and, uh, yeah, but uh, and then uh, I'll leave a link below. Uh, six Hans Christian Andersen themed like family minus games with like three flip and rights for uh, 
for kids uh, and three small card games as well. Ah, so many, so many ways to have Asger in your life without ever talking to him. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and this venture with me. As always, my name is Josh. And I'm Andrew. And this has been the Tabletop Summary.